I think Europe is the origin of all the contemporary culture. And um, being here, I well, there, there are a lot of opportunities to see new things, old things, to meet new people, to, to be inspired. And then when I bring this uh, experience and new knowledge with me back to Hong Kong, I create new conversation with my at my work and at pe with people that um, I hang out with or I even in the industry. So I think it's also very beneficial in a way. You are listening to Design in the City, a podcast about the ways we can use design to make cities more livable and lovable. This podcast is a Recite production, and Recite is a global nonprofit acting to improve the urban environment, both on the stage at our events and off. This is Alexandra Siebenthal, and I will be your host. My name is Yoko, Yoko Choi. I'm from Hong Kong. Now I'm working in between uh, Amsterdam and Hong Kong. I do actually two different jobs. So I'm the China editor of Wallpaper Magazine. That's mm -hmm. my journalist work. That's my writing and editing work. And I also started a creative agency in Beijing last year. It's mm -hmm. called the Collective Contemporist. Um, it's like a is a is a platform to help to generate a project between the West and the East. So yeah, this is my current two roles. During this episode, you will hear from Yoko as she moderates a panel at Recite between director Beatrice Lianza of Lisbon's Map Museum, as well as UK and China-based Wallace Liu founders, Jamie Wallace and Ji Liu. Following their discussion on everything from urban regeneration to personal experience working between two domains of influence, we will hear more from Yoko on just how she aims to connect, integrate, and provoke with that dialogue. Uh, very happy to see you all today in Prague. And um, I'm very honored to be on the stage with uh, Beatrice, one of the most important movers in contemporary design development in China and a very young and energetic um, practice from um, China and also the UK. So I think um, Jamie working with Ji, I yeah. think that gives you a very um, good introduction to the culture. Mm. So what is your work, uh, what was your experience working in China? Is culture a big obstacle or excitement or how is it like for you? Well, of course, it's terribly exciting to be in China and work there. But I think actually it's the opposite to being an obstacle, the yeah. cultural difference. I think it was probably actually beneficial, you know, because there were many occasions where I would say things, you know, things that I felt or believed in that probably somebody local wouldn't have said that because of the situation. They, you know, they would have been losing face, as I say, in, in China. But I didn't feel any concern about that and the ability to kind of tell the truth. Actually, people respected that and they kind of mm. generally wanted to hear it. Mm. So I think, yeah, it's kind of the opposite, actually. Great. And um, what, what about you? You also, you give a lot of opportunities to young practice and mm. you work with people from 
all around the world, and you invite them to China to do new things, to try to help to build a new um, landscape or cityscape or communities in China. So what's your experience? What do you think all these cultures coming together in China, what does it do, really? I don't think that the issue is the, the mixing of the provenance of people. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the people that come from wherever, I mean like if it be France or Africa, wherever mm -hmm. they practice, uh, I think it's been clear, at least from the few presentations that I've heard today, that they all struggle with the same issues. So, and they all struggle with the same sense of importance, you know, like against the power that be, that, you know, um, are imposed, you know, like on them from, you know, the top down. So it wasn't my experience and the way I, I pick people, let's say, it wasn't because I had to make the cultural mix. Mm -hmm. It's because I thought these people were very prescient in a way that they had set in place, you know, methodologies, you know, like of working uh, that really exceeded, you know, like the, the tooling that design gives you, you know, um, and then brought them over because I don't believe in uh, I don't believe in generating models, but I believe in like crafting methodologies. And so that's what you can export. And so that's a very different definition of, of uh, what is scale. And that's also why actually my presentation was titled The Scale and Design of the Common Good. I think that there is in place and we're all witnessing something very transformative and we have to start dealing with it. Um, and for me, for the, the East and the West, uh, they really differ in one way. Uh, you know, in the West, uh, now I'm generalizing, of course, we believe in the sovereignty of the people. In China, the sovereignty is with the state. So simply put is who's the means to improve and better, who's the means of innovations? Mm -hmm. So who is that popular, you know, like that it's really kind of allowing, you know, like for so-called disruption to happen, mm -hmm. you know, taken in the most, you know, like constructive way. So in the West, we have Google and the X factory, you know, like that is, you know, like generously, you know, generating a protectorate of projects that is going to give, you know, like internet to millions in the world, you know, give us like driver, you know, like uh, carless streets and etc. And so they're saving the world and who's benefiting from it? Mm -hmm. So, well, not that China has the perfect recipe for it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if they pull the plug, they pull the plug and, you know, bye-bye to the BAT, bye to, you know, like Alibaba and Tencent. But at the same time, I think that that kind of nurtures a different way in which you can find your place as an innovator. Mm -hmm. So scale doesn't matter anymore as much as the small scale kind of can empower a distributed majority. So I think that methodology rules over model. And do you think uh, when, when you work with all these practices, new or old, small or big, do you have to try to un help them to understand the situation or the culture, the problem in China before they start, they start to create? Or as Jamie said, it's actually better of you just go and experience and explore and make mistakes and make new decisions. In, I don't, I, I, again, I'm not, I'm not, you know, a practitioner in that sense. Mm. So I, but I know what is, you know, like the, what are the risks of having a bad brief? Yeah. <laughs> so 
uh, and that I think works everywhere. I mean, I, I do believe in the, you know, in the so-called, you know, like boo-boo of uh, Chinese exceptionalism. There is one and it's systemic, but I also think that when it comes down, you know, like to, uh, you know, co-action, co-generation, it's just an issue of, of understanding who you're talking to. So yes, you need that step, I find. You can't apply, you know, like the same um, attitude as if, yeah. you know, anywhere else. I mean, of maybe you yeah. disagree, but. No, I don't disagree at all. I think that it was uh, useful for ourselves to be Wallace Liu, to be, on the one hand, Chinese, and on the one hand, British, you know, because we could kind of use that identity in a fluid way to challenge people mm. in ways that they're not used to being challenged, you know. Sometimes we could be, operate in a very Chinese way, sometimes in a very British way. So well. go going, back, going back to the central theme of the whole conference, regeneration, I think this term is relatively a new concept in China, because I think in the past couple of decades, when we talk about urban development, the common practice is to just demolish everything and then make place for new development. But in recent years, uh, you, you see more cases of like preservation or uh, restoration and so on. So what do you think, what, what changes the circumstances? What has changed in the society that now regeneration is the topic of future development? What do you think? It's just not economic to keep on building, even for the Chinese state. So on a side, there is that for sure. I mean, I don't want to be the cynical here, but like we have to be realistic, you know, about things. I mean, what I showed you exists and exists in, you know, like, you know, end power, uh, you know. So there's plenty of practitioners that are working differently, you know, and they, they uh, well, it is, you know, part of my job as a curator, you know, to give them voice within the context, you know, of like cultural platforms like this or institutions or biennales and etc. But uh, the reality is, uh, can't, you cannot build anymore that much. Uh, there is an issue with that. There is an mm -hmm. issue with the congestion and you know, like density of yeah. cities. Everything that is happening now is exactly the, the opposite. It's about decongesting, depopulating cities. Uh, it's happening, of course, in Beijing. It's happening you know, like everywhere else. Um, and uh, there is a serious issue, of course, with the depletion of the environment, uh, which, by the way, the Chinese have been at the forefront of, you know, in fact, for the past years. Um, so maybe, maybe not much of it gets to be, you know, like reported or told, but uh, it's easier demonizing, but, uh, you know, million steps ahead. And plus, um, you know, there's, going back to the people factor, uh, there is an issue, of course, with like, uh, providing, you know, like for the, the other 57, I think, 57% now of the population that is not urbanized. Mm -hmm. So can't keep on urbanizing, uh, you know, at the expense of environment and etc. So then you move the other front mm. and then how. <coughs> but, but I think that it's true that in specific cases, the discourse was not there. I mean, the issues with Hutongs, you know, with the situation with, uh, you know, like with this uh, historical communities, it's been the subject, you know, like of discussion among urbanists for a hundred years, you know, like since the beginning of, you know, like the 1900s. It's not that it wasn't there. It was just never a public issue. And I, I think, of course, generational change does that. You, um, you know, like you want to 
be engaged with something else for sure there is the power you know like of of being young and resourceful um, there is also the fact that there is no jobs for you if you want to build you know like 12 towers <laughs> that's true and what what do you think uh, yes, I understand. Yeah, the general un understanding of yes, we cannot build anymore. But I think it's not just the case of China. Very quickly, all around the world, we'll face the same issue. We cannot keep on building, pouring more concrete. That's not a solution. So we have to think creatively about what we've already got. Yeah. So that's that. But by operating on the ground, what I've also experienced is, is that there is nostalgia. There's a growing nostalgia mm -hmm. with people who were born in China. In the, in the generation of, they were born perhaps in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. So they have that particular relationship with Cultural Revolution and all the rest of it. And they are the people, the generation that made most money in the wave of upgrowing, because they were the ones that just go, let's just do it, same as Satirism, let's just do it, nothing else matters. Let's burn our head down and make money right now. But now they are about to approach the last end of their career and they were the people that feel nothing has left. There's not enough of memory left. Everything is gone. Uh, and there's quite a few recent documentaries revealing that emotion. And these are the people, politicians, um, stakeholders, uh, CEOs of state-owned companies. They are in position and they feel sorry of what happened in the past and they are supporting us, in fact. And I think they will be supporting the next generation of architectural practice in uh, conservation and renovation as well. But, is, but that is necessary, because I understand there is drive all around us that we have to do this. But the inner drive is equally as important. I think, yeah, I think you're completely right. There's this kind of value change in society mm. where it places value on, on uh, heritage. But I also think there's a kind of value change in uh, development as well. You know, the vast majority, if not all, of Ch China's cities are procured speculatively, and, mm. and there, is, there is money in heritage now that mm. kind of draws people to it, people are interested in it, and when that's the case, people will keep it. Mm. You know? So, well, we don't have much time, but my last question to all three of you is that from your experience and your culture and your um, work in China, what do you think we can provide or to offer the Western community? For me, personally, it's, you know, I feel very kind of privileged to get to work with Ji. She's incredibly kind of skillful and talented at what she does. So, and, and I'm sure you are as well, Yoko. And you two are kind of from the East, now working in the West. And so I think actually kind of skill and talent is a kind of big thing that mm. Asia offers. You know? And a Asia is a big topic, again, I have to say. I mean, China has a very different reality, and Japan is another thing entirely. And you have Hong Kong, which is a different reality, yeah. and you have Singapore, and you have all the rest of the Southeast Asia, and everything else. Um, and um, so, so I don't think there's a universal sort of um, mm. understanding of the East, or and the universal understanding of the West. I mean, America is very different to Europe. Um, but I think what's, what's in common is it's very hard to build good architecture anywhere. That's my experience in London mm. and in China. And it's very hard to push forward the conservation adaptive scheme anywhere. Thank you very much for everyone. I think this is just the beginning of the conversation because when we talk about China, when we talk about East and West, it's a big 
topic, it's a universal topic. So thank you very much for sharing your experience and I hope the conversation will continue after mm. the talk. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. As the East and West become more intertwined through globalization, Yoko sees gaps that still need to be bridged within the design industry. Beijing, Hong Kong, and Amsterdam are cities that Yoko splits her time working between. We asked Yoko about the contrast she sees between them and what sort of inspiration and energy she is able to draw from all of them. I think, well, because I'm from Hong Kong, so Hong Kong is always my home. So I think a lot of times I'm more critical about what's happening or what's the development or all kind of issues in Hong Kong. I think I have a more critical uh, uh, view or, or comment on it. Amsterdam is the opposite of Hong Kong. It's very chill. Yes. It's the, the city is great. But I think I, I start to like both more since I start doing this kind of uh, traveling or, or share uh, splitting my time in two cities because when I'm in Hong Kong I miss the lifestyle and the pace mm -hmm. and and um, and activities in in Europe and in Europe I miss the energy and the, to, to do things mm -hmm. in a more spontaneous way in Hong Kong so I think I'm lucky enough to have both so so in Amsterdam I think if I step out of my house, there's green. <coughs> there's always trees and, 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 and lawns and everything. Mm -hmm. It's a very green city. And in Hong Kong, it's more difficult. But actually, more than 70% of the land in Hong Kong is green. So, But you don't see it if you are working in the city or, or, or in the center. So I think it's, it's, it's not difficult to see green. The, the thing is just that to slow down and to find time to enjoy the green in Hong Kong. I yeah. think that's the challenge. I think in, in Hong Kong, I hope people will take more time to enjoy life, which is not an easy thing, of course, uh, because of a lot of uh, different circumstances. And um, yeah, I, I yeah I hope pe people will be more positive about the future and to just to be more open up to the world and see for more. Mm -hmm. And in Amsterdam, I think they are having a perfect life. It's just mm -hmm. that I well for for me myself I miss some of the energy that I have mm -hmm. in in Hong Kong or China. We chatted a bit more about her cross-cultural focus and using her experience living in those cities as a lens of design inspiration. I'm specialized in contemporary design and architecture, etc. So I think Europe is the origin of all the contemporary culture. And um, being here, I well, there, there are a lot of opportunities to see new things, old things, to meet new people, to, to be inspired. And then when I bring this uh, experience and new knowledge with me back to Hong Kong, I create new conversation with my, at my work and at peop with people 
that um, I hang out with or I even in the industry. So I think it's also very beneficial in a way that, yeah, yeah. the traveling and my work and my life. My business partner is based in Beijing, uh -huh. so right. it's more, yeah, it's convenience to be there, but uh, we do travel a lot. And as you say, mm -hmm. Shanghai is a more international platform in a way. Um, but at the same time, Beijing as the capital is the center of culture and also mm. um, 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 innovation. So I yeah. think, um, yeah, it's good to be in both cities or even try to, yeah, now I'm trying to travel more around China to see different uh, parts of the country. We dug a little deeper into the evolution of Chinese design and where it's headed. Yeah, I think in the mainland China, there's a lot of things changing and happening. And of course, to be, as a, as a creator, it's very exciting to be part of the change and part of the movement. And, um, and also talking from my journalist role. So I have been writing for about 15 years. And um, at the beginning of my career, a lot of people asked me about what, chi what Chinese design is, what's, what, what about Chinese culture. No one knows anything about it. And it's I think, it? yeah, it's very confusing. It's also, it's also, China is huge. And I'm coming from Hong Kong, and only to explain the situation in Hong Kong or mm. is already quite difficult, I found. And also at that time, like 15 years ago, to be very honest, there's not much I can say about Chinese design or Chinese creativity because at that time the country start only start uh, creating new things so to 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 yeah to open up to the world. But now I think that there are enough very good uh, talent, very good uh, projects and very positive um, things that are happening mm -hmm. in China and also in Hong Kong. Much of Yoko's work is about creating connections and filling in the gaps between the different spheres in the design world. And she is after more than just an alignment of the two, but on a mission to translate insights from both worlds into a common creative language. She aims to raise awareness on the importance of cross-cultural dialogues and how it can influence both the design and city-making processes. Agency only started uh, about for about 10 months. And uh, within these 10 months, we did uh, three different uh, mini-conferences. Mm -hmm. One in Beijing, one in Shanghai, and the third one was... Well, well, we went back to, to Beijing. So the concept is to bring together um, the people we like, uh, people we believed in, in terms of business or creativity or, or innovation and so on. Mm -hmm. So for example, the first conference uh, we did in Beijing, we invited uh, Studio Drift from Amsterdam and um, um, some local architects and designers from China and also Hong Kong, and then put them together with like the, the, the city planners and um, um, technology businesses uh, leaders and so on to create a conversation. And we hope through that conversation, we will find out what's important to the community and what which direction we should go for the future development. So it was a very successful conference in, in Beijing. 
And uh, from that, we moved to Shanghai. We did another uh, conference uh, during the Design Shanghai Week. And again, the concept is to bring people from different disciplines and sit together and, mm. and have an exchange. We switch gears a bit to discuss this year's theme of regeneration and what that means for her personally and professionally. I think um, first things that comes to mind is that is about future, is about our survival, mm-hmm. and it's also about our respect to the community and also to the environment. I try to be more conscious about my impact to the environment. Uh, starting from my daily life, I try not to use plastic or I try to avoid all kind of single-use uh, um, tools. And of course, it's very difficult to change completely your sti- uh, lifestyle. So, but I start reading more about what kind of things we can do or what um, what impact we are we, we we are producing to the to the world. So I want to be personally more conscious about my everyday decisions, and I hope from there I can yeah help with. It seems we can't discuss regeneration without discussing climate change and the environment. We asked Yoko about her thoughts on what cities could do to combat the impending climate crisis. I think, uh, first of all, the government should should take the the leadership role um, to educate and to um, implement um, laws or regulations to really try to improve the situation. And also, as I mentioned, as a as a, as an individual, you have to be more conscious about what kind of decisions you you make in your daily life. I think it's not um, it's more than it's, it's more down to an individual's uh, responsibility, rather than I think we can't really mm-hmm. only rely on the government or what the cities do oh, and to be more willing to to give up some kind of convenience that you are enjoying mm-hmm. in the contemporary life. In the days of clickbait and an overwhelming amount of content available at our fingertips, we discuss what Yoko thinks of the current state of our media and where she is setting her sights. Yeah, I think nothing is ever in a good state. I mean, if you, if you are talking about improvement or development of anything, there's always something you can do more about it. And I think um, talking about the media industry, I think uh, obviously is facing a lot of challenges in this uh, digital age. And um, I still believe the authority and the quality of printed uh, materials, like books or magazines or, or anything. Mm-hmm. Of course, nowadays, the, the readers would uh, like to buy something that they would like to keep. They won't buy something. They, they know that after reading, they would just throw it away. They want to have something they can collect or, or treasure about. Mm-hmm. So I think it's very important even for us to improve the, the quality of our printed magazine. But um, it's also very important that um, how do we uti- utilize the digital platforms and how to connect the experience between digital and the physical world for our readers. And I think it's, it's, it's also a, a good good time to, um, how, how should I put it, to Im- 
eliminate the bad ones. Mm. So okay. because the competition and challenges so on so on, only the good ones can stay, and is always good that way. <laughs> the terms greenwashing and fake news have risen in written content over the past decade. We were wondering what skills Yoko, as a journalist, reckons to be essential for readers in our mediated future and why she thinks the readers should always be cautious of the message. I think uh, from a receiving point of view, I think nowadays you have to be very careful about what kind of news or information coming to you because as we know, there are, there are lots of fake information or misinformation or information that mm. is not 100% accurate. Sure. And I think it's everyone's struggle that how do you know or how do you verify the, the source of, of the information? Mm. I think this is, the, yeah, this is the struggle as a receiver. And I think as a journalist or as a media worker, I think it's very important that you 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 know you always give the most accurate and most ethical information or, yeah. or, 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 or news or any content to your audience. I think always keep a critical mind. Mm -hmm. Always try to um, not to under, not to believe in things that you 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 just came to you or I mean, also maybe because I'm a journalist, I always verified the source of the information sure. that's important um, to, to me. And um, yeah, just try to keep a clear mind and try to be mm -hmm. fair to different uh, uh, voices or, or parties or groups and mm -hmm. everything. Yeah. That was Yoko Choi, founder of the Collective Contemporist and Wallpaper's China editor. If you are curious to learn more about Yoko or stay up to date with her latest projects, all of the info you need can be found in this episode's description. Join us as we dissect these issues with guests like Ravi Naidu, founder of Design and Daba, Thomas Heatherwick, founder of Heatherwick Studios, architecture critic and founder of McMansion Hell, Kate Wagner, Wallpaper China's Yoko Choi, and many more. This podcast is brought to you by Recite, the global nonprofit acting to improve the urban environment and organized as part of the project Shared Cities Creative Momentum. You can find more talks, stories, and information about upcoming events at Recite.org. Become involved with the Recite community through our various social channels or by joining our newsletter. All links can be found in the show notes. This podcast is produced by Radka Andrachkova, Matije Kostu, Adriana Bielakova, Gil Cienfuegos, and Polina Riobuka. It is directed and hosted by myself, Alexandra Siebenthal, and recorded and edited by Little Big Studio.